Hi, I'm Jason Nichols, and I'm on the left. And I'm Vince Colonnese, and I'm on the right. And, and if, if we, we can't, can't find, find common, common ground, ground in this world, world today, today, then we're all just travelers. Passing each other in an international airport. And this great American experiment will be relegated to the trash bin of history. So let's come together to debate without yelling. And, and let's, let's save, save this, this nation. nation. Dr. Victor Davis Hansen joins us. This is Vincent Jason Save the Nation. Vincent Jason Save the Nation is brought to you by Goldco. Welcome back, guys, to Vincent Jason Save the Nation. We're happy to have you with us. And we're also happy to have a really good guest. Uh, Vince, tell them who we have with us. Uh, today, we have with us the New York Times bestselling author, Victor J uh, Davis Hansen. Uh, he's also with the Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Uh, and he's a guy with a uh, great new book. It's called The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America. It's going to be, I think, a good conversation here as the three of us kick things off. Uh, first of all, Dr. Hansen, great to have you with us, sir. Thank you for having me. Uh, this, uh, this idea, the, the dying citizen, um, your book is fascinating, I, I, I first have to say. Um, I, you, you write about the value of citizenship and sort of the, the rarity uh, in human history of actually being a citizen in a society where you can help dictate what the outcomes are in that society. Can you just talk basically just about yeah. what it means to be a citizen of a country and uh, how fragile you think that is? Yes, it's a very rare idea and it came very late in civilizational history, not till 2,500 years ago for the first 5,000 years of civilization. And for most of civilization since, uh, residents have been either subjects or they've been serfs or they've been sometime uh, indentured of, of some say or slaves. But the idea that a citizen is a resident of a particular place that has borders and a unique traditions, customs, and then the citizen themselves, the citizens them themselves, they do what? They elect their own officials, they audit them, they censor them, they can uh, drive them out of office, we call them. They have a constitutional blueprint of laws that transcend the moment. Uh, and most importantly, they are in control of the executive, even if they don't specifically say that in a tripartite fashion, but the executive, judicial, and, and legislative branches of government. And they, they determine revenues and expenditures. Mm -hmm. But the most important thing is that officials serve at their pleasure and not vice versa. And that started in Greece around 700. And oddly enough, it was the idea to, that when people had olives and vines and they had a lot of investment in them, they were not able under prior regimes to pass that on to their children. So that was the idea to protect your property and through inheritance and that the law would transcend a particular ruler or tyrant or king. And so it was the idea that individuals had rights to their property. And then from that, it expanded into what we see now. But even today, there's 190 nations in the world and less than 90 of them are constitutional. And when you look at the 90 that are called Democratic or Republican, they're not really, it's about 30 or 40, I think. Mm. And what, and what typically leads to the end of a democracy? When you look back at history and you, and you look at countries that had citizens and then they become tyrannical, uh, yeah. what, is, what are the conditions for that? Aristotle has a whole discussion of that very question in the politics, but it was this paradox that if you have the people 
the majority of the people are middle class. That was the ideal in the ancient world. And they vote on uh, where to get the money and who is to receive it from government, then naturally they will vote to tax other people than themselves and to get government to give them uh, higher subsidies. And that would continue until some, you know, is that conservative uh, cliche, we're gonna run out of Margaret Thatcher's until it runs out of somebody else's money. But you see it in the ancient world where golds uh, or silver coinage will be bronzed over and uh, they'll, they'll call them silver heads because the head of the coin that sticks out will rub off and you'll see that it's not, that the silver is very thin or vice versa. They call them redheads where they're really bronze coins with gold veneers. But the idea is that uh, eventually people will not spend money on defense, on national security, but on entitlements. And it's their choice to do so. They, they're the majority. And so there's this sort of warning about. The other thing very quickly is that with the onset of the Industrial Revolution, there was a whole pessimistic strain in Western Civ that if you give people so much money and so much leisure, then you create, and the Romans talked about luxus or decadence or luxury. That's right. The, and you know, that we're all not going to get up in the morning and go to work because the system is so affluent that we don't have to, or we can navigate around uh, getting to work. Or our appetites control us. This is a modern phenomenon, but it was known, it was a big issue in the early uh, Roman Empire that people with all these arrays of choices of material acquisition or longer life or sensuality, uh, that market capitalism and freedom gives you under a constitution that they become enslaved by their appetites. They don't get married. They don't have children. Yes. They have a prolonged, what Tocqueville said was prolonged adolescence, sort of a life of Julia or a pajama boy existence. Mm. Jason, so, go ahead. Go ahead, yeah. sir. Victor, I just want to say that um, even though there are many parts of your book that I probably disagree with, I really enjoyed the writing. I thought it was really yeah. good writing. And I, and I honestly believe that that is a, a lost skill. Um, you know, you read people, no matter where they are on the political spectrum, and they're not good writers. And so yeah. uh, I really enjoyed that. I also want to give you uh, one other compliment. And that is, even as an emeritus professor, you are somebody who is uh, still productive. And you don't find, you know, people later in their careers who are still productive in academia. Yeah. Um, so I have to give you uh, props for that. I did have uh, several questions from, yeah. from your book and from some of the essays that you've written. You've written an incredible amount. Yeah. So trying to get through it was difficult. Uh, but, um, you know, I did my best. Um, so you state in your book that citizens, and this is a quote, citizens can do as much harm to their commonwealth by violating custom and tradition as by breaking laws. Isn't it true that much of the social progress and constitutional amendments actually come from our country's willingness to break with tradition? I would submit the 13th, 15th, and 19th Amendments, along with the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Loving versus Virginia, and the civil rights citizens at segregated facilities. I would argue that it is our country's willingness to break with tradition and custom, and sometimes laws, that has made it the most desirable and prosperous country on earth. What would you say? Well, when we say country, we have a divided country on a lot of issues. But when I'm talking about uh, 
traditions and customs, whether it's the national anthem or Fourth of July or no, uh, civic unity behind uh, reading the Gettysburg Address, there has to be some consensus. And I think most people, most people, the majority of Americans thought that slavery, the examples that you, in connection with the amendments you mentioned, that slavery was the aberration, that most states were not slaves. And the reason that we had slavery states in the beginning was right after a revolution that almost made the American experiment impossible, we were faced with a dilemma that about a third of the states did not want to get rid of slaves. And so there was this tenuous compromise that we said, okay, we're gonna deal with this, but we can't deal with it now. And we dealt with it you know, within 80 years. But uh, you gotta remember that of the 700,000 people that were killed in the Civil War, the majority of, uh, the greater number were from the North. So if you look at somebody like William Tecumseh Sherman's march that destroyed, really destroyed Lee's strategy. He, two, about 90% of his regiments were from places like Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan, uh, on Ohio, in Indiana. When you read the letters of these soldiers, when they got down into Georgia, what was striking about it, they had never seen an African-American person, literally never had seen one. They were up, mm -hmm. they were. And so when they went down there, they were burning plantations, freeing African-American slaves, singing the battle hymn of the Republic and dying. And so there was this tradition in America that that was an innate flaw and that the constitution had amendments and that it had these checks and balances. And when the legislative and judicial and executive process proved not sufficient, and the amendment process did not prove sufficient, then there were the majority of the country, and remember that the North outnumbered the South three to one. And it had the majority of the states, it had the majority of the population, it had the majority of the industry. And it decided that it was not going to go down and allow the South to say, oh, I quit now, I can't win, so we're just gonna break off. We don't want any harm with you. We're gonna go, and it said, no, no. You're part of the United States and we're gonna crush you and we're gonna destroy your economy and we're gonna remake you in the image of the majority of the country. And so that's what we did. I can't think of another country that's done that in a civil war. And uh, then when the crooked bargain of 1876 and we did not keep uh, troops down, then we, we got lax. So we had Jim Crow, but it's always a self-critical, self-reflective uh, system that we have. And to get that system going, we have to have common reference. And so people who are, were white and had never seen an African-American in 1864 realized that it was very important to go down and stop Wade Hampton or John Bell Hood even though they didn't knew nothing about them. They were, it was a pre-industrial, almost pre-industrial society where they didn't know anything about Georgia. When they got down to Georgia, they'd never seen anything like it. The terrain, the, the weather, the, it was such a vast country. So I think we've always had that tradition. And that was why, you know, I grew up in an area here where I'm speaking from the same farmhouse and I knew two black families in rural California when I was growing up. And yet when I was 11 years old, my mother drove all of us up to Grace Cathedral in San Francisco for Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, the, the precursors to that. And then when it was crowded, she pushed me into the door and I heard him at 11. And then, of course, even though I had no reference 
uh, about African-Americans and in my own personal experience, I was told that this was very important that you not have segregation in part of the country, especially a part of the country that you thought that had been settled a hundred years earlier. So the country is self-reflecting, it's not perfect. It's got a lot of flaws, mm -hmm. but it has to have common reference, especially because it's so multiracial now and multi-ethnic and there's no, there's no record in the past that uh, any such country has succeeded because the natural condition of mankind is tribalism to have your superficial appearance as your primary reference, not to be incidental. And so when you see these racially diverse countries, the level of coercion necessary in the Ottoman Empire or the Soviet Empire or the former Yugoslavia or Rwanda is such that it's antithetical to our own system. And so we're trying it, we're doing a very good job really compared to other countries that are large ethnic multi-ethnic democracies like Brazil or India that are not nearly as effective, but for it to work, it's a very fragile idea. We have to come together and say, yes, we all agree about the, uh, we'd like to honor letter from the Birmingham jail or the Gettysburg address, or we have to have one civic idea of the 4th of July. If you don't have those, then people are gonna balkanize and everybody will balkanize. That's what happens in history. So. It's not just going to be Latinos and Asians, and you'll see whites start to say, you know what, I don't believe that uh, my race should be uh, essential to who I am, but since everybody else is doing it, I'm going to do it. And I'm, you're already starting to detect parts of that. And when people start self-segregating and give up on the idea of a multiracial democracy, it'll unwind much more quickly than we can imagine. And I don't think it's in the interest of anybody. You know, uh, where Jason was uh, t starting with talking about like sort of the destruct some of the, the ways that um, if we change the culture, that's really meaningful. Uh, I'm thinking of, you know, the New York City Council removing the statue of Thomas Jefferson this past week. That is uh, a, a trend that I feel like is only accelerating where we view important figures in our history, uh, not with the nuance that they deserve uh, and instead with these like sort of blunt instruments of destruction that if they had any sin of any kind that they need to be removed or, you know, and- That's an excellent point. And, and, um, and I, 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 do you worry about that? Is it, is it, is this kind of, is this just kind of um, a, a tantrum that we should just ignore or is it something more deeper than that? No, it's deeper than that. It's, it's sort of like, Western iconoclasm or in the Byzantine Empire iconoclasm where you destroy statues of a particular sect of Christianity because you disagree with it or you Trotskyize people in the Soviet Union or the Jacobins in revolutionary France go out and destroy all mention of the Bourbons and the monarchy. And so, and it never ends. And so once you, once you establish this, this precedent or this principle that we of the modern affluent leisured age where we don't worry about being able to see because we have glasses or we get a strep throat and we take penicillin and that's it. And then we look back at people who didn't know whether they're going to eat the next day. And most of their time was spent, you know, growing food. And we say to them, you have to match up to our ideas of morality. And if you don't, 99.9%, .9%, then we're going to cancel you out. And you can see where it leads. Uh, Martin Luther King, to give you an example, somebody I admire a lot, was a plagiarist. He plagiarized his PhD thesis. And from what we know from Ralph Abernathy and others, he was very unkind to women of whom he was having affairs. 
Now, does that cancel, in my view, out what his contribution was? No, not at all. And when I look back at other uh, leaders that had feet of clay, whether it was Washington or Lincoln, uh, Lincoln was pretty mean to women. I mean, he showed up at one, he didn't show up at one of his weddings. He was supposed to get married. And he said things that maybe were seem indiscreet today, but that doesn't cancel out who he was. Wait, Same Abraham Lincoln, with, Abraham Lincoln stood up his own bride. I didn't realize that. Yes, yes, he did. Second, oh, wow. At a, at a, at a, before he married his, his present wife. Our FDR was having his own daughter, Anna, arrange liaisons with his uh, mistress, Lucy Mercer, while he was in the White House. Does that cancel out what he did? No, I don't think it did. So I think we've all got to take a deep breath and say we're human. And there are certain areas of private and public lives that we don't necessarily need to intermingle and we don't judge the past. We can be judged very harshly in 30 years. We can have a, a much more sophisticated affluent society say to us, wow, you people in 2020, let me get this straight. You aborted over a million people a day. I mean, a year, excuse me. And those fetuses were not fetuses. You call them fetuses, but you had the technology in most cases where they could live and you aborted them. I don't know if that'll happen or not, but that could happen. Or right. 7,000 African-American young people were shot and you were indifferent to it. Or in the major streets of your cities, you allowed 600,000 people to defecate, urinate right on the street, right in front of you, did nothing. So what are we going to say when we're told that? We have a lot of reasons that we could, we could offer defenses for our behavior, but this is a continual process and it doesn't work very well when one generation says, uh, I find you wanting and they're on forum canceling me out, especially when this country has over a million, this year it's gonna be 2 million people coming illegally and a million people coming legally Mm-hmm. And 3 million people are going to come to a country of the majority population it doesn't look anything like them. And yet the elites are going to say to them, you're going to come into a deeply racist, sexist, unfair, uh, non-diverse country. And they're going to say to them, have you been down to Oaxaca state in Mexico? This is a very racist, impoverished, dysfunctional, criminal society. And I'll set one foot in the United States and expect it to be much better. I wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So I, I live in a, a, a small community where I grew up and I talk to immigrants all the time. And their basic narrative is I'll do anything to get to the United States. And it's not just economic. It's I people call me Mr. Down in Mexico and Oaxaca. They do not call me senor. I'm treated like dirt. And uh, if you want to see real racism, they'll tell you incidents of racism where they can't even go to a restaurant if they're indigenous people when they go to Mexico, certain areas of Mexico City. And they want to come here. And yet people here feel that, A, we have to open the borders, and let everybody in, but this is a toxic country, so there's a disconnect. Why would they want to come if we're right about it? Mm-hmm. So um, there, there was a lot said there. I, I personally... As as Vince knows, when it comes to statue representations of people, I don't think we should venerate anyone with statues. Um, that's just my personal view for the very reasons that you stated, is that um, people are flawed, ideas aren't. Um, or there are some ideas that I think and principles that we can agree upon uh, here in this country and, and around the world. So why not 
venerate those ideas rather than the people that we say represent them, when in many cases, they're not necessarily holding up to those ideals. I'm sure, you know, you're in California. I'm sure you wouldn't like the fact that in Oakland, they just put up a bust of, uh, of um, Huey P. Newton from the Black Panther Party. I don't have a problem with it, but, you know, I, I personally think that the ideas that, you know, people are venerating when they're talking about and, and praising and lauding when they put up something that represents Huey P. Newton, they can represent those ideas without actually having to have the person represented. I see um, that was your, what you're saying. You almost uh, repeated verbatim what Robespierre said that during the French Revolution. He said just that. And so he put up a statue, remember, of ratio, reason. And they were going to, uh, French people were going to worship pure reason rather than particular individuals of the past because that they, they felt that reason in its purity and the French Enlightenment would not have the flaws of in its incarnation by certain people. My I mean, we live in a consensual society. So I think that people of that particular county or that particular state, I can disagree with it, but I have no problem if people down in Memphis, Tennessee, get up in the morning and they say, you know, this was wrong. We have a statue. I wrote a book once about uh, the Civil War, and I was very critical of Nathan Bedford Forrest, the slave owner. He was a brilliant general, but he was an abject racist. He was probably culpable in the Fort Pillow massacre. So I went down there and I walked over to the Martin Luther King Motel Museum, and there was nobody there, two people there. I went over across the street, and there was 30 people putting flowers at the statue of, of John uh, Nathan Bedford Ford. I wrote about in the book, I said, this is a very strange thing to happen. So if Tennessee, the city of Tennessee or the county or the proper jurisdiction says, we don't want that anymore. And we have a majority of people in the city council who were duly elected. And I think they did that. They removed it. I have no problem with that. Uh, as long as it's not done in iconoclastic fashion, that is toppled, defaced at night, it's a free country and each jurisdiction can honor the heroes they want. If Oakland wants to have that, even though when I was a student at UC Santa Cruz, Huey Newton was brought in. He later, as you know, was convicted of murder or involved in a murder. And he had a lot of violent, he had felonies on his record. But if people felt that that was a representation of somebody that they wanted to look up to in Oakland and they were the majority and they had did it duly, I, I wouldn't have no right to go in there at night with a bunch of people from Selma, California. Hispanic people and I all go, drive up there and knock it down. I wouldn't do that. I don't think anybody has the right to. So I, I, I think there's a process to approve statues and not prove them. We can do it on the federal level too. So if you say, well, these are federal property, the Lincoln Memorial's on federal property, no state, no county, no individual can deface that. I, I agree with that. So, so Victor, the, the, I guess the follow-up question that I have to that would be, um, how do you feel about some of these Confederate generals who never fought for the United States of America being, being uh, you know, venerated by having their names on bases that we pay taxes to maintain. Yeah. Yes, and that's a good question. And a lot of generals from uh, David Petraeus to Stanley McChrystal have called for the bases to be changed. I will say though, that I'm a little skeptical of our military when they served in those bases for 30 years, and when it was unpopular to say, let's change Fort Bragg, they never said a word. 
And then they only said a word during the last year. And I think that was more virtue signaling than principle. But nonetheless, there's a couple of issues here. One is that most of these Southern generals were mediocrities. So Fort Bragg is named after uh, Braxton Bragg. If you look at his record, it wasn't just mediocre. It, there were certain races. He was a racist. And the same thing is true of most of those generals, but there were not all of them. So if you look at James Longstreet, he was reluctant. He said he didn't really want to fight. He didn't have a choice. And then after the war was, he didn't own slaves. After the war was over, he was very prominent in protecting African-Americans in the South during Reconstruction. And he worked for the Northern government. He was hated by Southerners. He was called, uh, you know, the traitor at Gettysburg. So a statue of him is very different than a statue or a base named after John Bell Hood, Fort Hood. I don't see the purpose if people do it again, democratically and the military says, these are things that I think we should change and they have a board and they wanna change John Bell Hood and you get into Fort Bragg. When you get into somebody like Robert E. Lee, you read Alan Guelzo's recent biography that is critical of Lee, then it's gonna be a little bit more controversial because although he in his personal life was I think culpable. He owned slaves. He claimed he didn't like slaves. He said he wanted to get rid of slaves, but he kept slaves. And he would have kept slaves had he not been prevented by the Union Army winning the war. So when you, But yet, on the other hand, he said, let's not have guerrilla warfare after the war is over. Let's accept the armistice. Let's accept the dominance of the Union Army. Let's accept federal power. So he did some good. But if people in the South want to change a building or a name or a base, uh, it's fine with me. Remember finally why these bases pop up in the South. It was after, uh, on the eve of World War I and after World War I, we really didn't have a federal army since the Civil War. So people in the South and the North said, we've got to need a national army. Europe is heating up, what are we gonna do? And after World War I, they said, we were lucky to get 2 million people over there in 18 months. So we've got to have permanent bases and train a standing army. And the South, South, Southerners and the Northerners said, okay. And the South said, well, we're depressed economically. And we would like that federal money here. And we're not going to vote for it. These were not necessarily internationalists in the South. These were Southern, Democratic, racist, segregationist, isolationists, populists. So they said to the Northern representatives, uh, if we will vote for these appropriations, but we get to name them because we want to honor the South. And so that was the crooked or corrupt bargain where the, the federal government said, okay, you can have Fort Bragg or you can have Fort Hood. And that's how we got where we are. And nobody really, when you go up to California and beautiful Russian river country and people go to Fort Bragg, Nobody knows that that's Braxton Bragg. That's the irony of it. I've gone up there and I've asked people because I was writing a book, a couple of books on the Civil War. What do you think of Braxton Bragg? Well, it's not named after him. I said, yes, it is. So a lot of times it's just nobody really knows what Fort Hood is. And so now I think it's just a question of custom and tradition. Do we really want to change all of these special forces reference point? If they want to do it, I'm fine with it. I just don't want to do it under pressure or do it. Uh, without constitutional support. So I, I I hear that. The only thing that, and I may be misunderstanding what you said earlier, but I thought that you said 
that you would want it to be kind of a local decision, but these are federal. No, I, I said that. In, in, yeah, I said if it's a local question, then it has to be a local city council, like Charlottesville. They want to take down the state. That's their business, not my business. Okay. If right. they want to do it at the state level, like we did with Father Sarah, which I disagreed with vehemently, or I went to school one day, I looked down from my Hoover office, and here was Father Sarah Plaza was gone. It was like I was in the Soviet Union, it just disappeared. And I said, where is Father Sarah that I was a student here? I've been working here for 20 years. It's gone. And they did it during the lockdown. I thought that was a little suspicious. But the federal government controls those bases. So the state can't say a word about it. And either can local. If the federal government, through proper cons consultation, wants to get rid of them, then usually I think right now the Pentagon has a committee that's looking at all of them. And they're looking at everything. They're looking at why do we have a statue of Robert E. Lee at West Point, but we did not have a comparable statue of Ulysses S. Grant that destroyed the Army of Northern Virginia and allowed us to get rid of slavery. And I think that's a mistake. And so I, I support anything that's institutionalized and, and consensual. I, I want to go back to, um, you know, you're talking about sort of like the decadence of uh, democracy and kind of, how, and as the generations pass and as we become more affluent, we become more disconnected with uh, the basics, it seems. Uh, and, you know, it, it really, that, that example you gave of somebody coming up from Oaxaca and saying, man, you want to see racism, you want to see division, you want to see a country that you don't want to be in. Uh, I don't, let me tell you about Oaxaca. I, how is it, you know, I, I, I guess I'm concerned. Do you feel like Americans are losing perspective uh, and when you look at, I, I often think of like the democracy protesters in Hong Kong. And if we were to push to them, if we were to ask them sort of anything about the debates we're having here in the United States, like whether it be about wind power, climate change, uh, transgender bathrooms, you know, whatever. Like, I, I feel like they would look at you like you had two heads. Like, really? That, that is your concern? Because right now my concern is fighting just to be represented. Um, have we lost perspective in the United States? Oh, yeah. I mean, I lived in Greece three years and I go there every other year. When you go to Greece today, people will say to you, are you going to protect us from Turkey? How come you don't talk about this? You know that Turkey could swallow Crete tomorrow. Do you yeah. understand that? And they don't and if they don't know anything about that. They don't care anything about that. And so I'm not suggesting it's not important because Greece doesn't care. I just that they have different priorities and those are existential priorities, how to survive because they don't, they're not convinced. People in Armenia, people in Greece, the Kurds, the Israeli are not convinced that they're gonna survive necessarily given the nature of their resources vis-a-vis -vis the sea of enemies in which they live. And so, yeah, I think that's one thing. Two things though, and I, I tried to write in the book is that there's relative and there's absolute perception. And so the first absolute is we feel now in America that we have, because of our technology, I think that we can do what we're doing right now. And remember, this was something that people dreamed of, uh, you know, at Disneyland 50 years ago. When I was a kid, we, you could do this in the guy next room. But because of this technology that has kind of conquered time and space, then everything in human affairs is, is doable, achievable, that we're perfect people, that that we're always changing, the constitution can change, and we're always getting near perfection. And history doesn't work that way, it's cyclical. Human nature is fickle. 
what, you know, you could argue that the Greeks had a level of material and the Romans had material prosperity that was lost for a thousand years. Same thing with constitutional government. And in, I mean, Alcadimus said in 340 BC, no man was born a slave, said that about the Spartan helots. That idea was anathema in the South until 50 years ago. So we go backward. And then the second is Americans are very insular. We're, you know, too big oceans and they, they don't get out enough and they don't understand or they don't appreciate their system of self-correction and stability. We're the oldest constitutional state in the world right now, 233 years. As I said earlier, most people have tried constitutional government. It didn't work. Some people have tried a multiracial society. They found it, it degenerated into tribalism. It was too violent. Most people do not have the time or the desire to uh, govern themselves or the ability. And so this is a very rare project and there's no guarantee it's gonna be here in five years. And there's no guarantee that when I go into town and I see Raymond Hernandez, that Raymond's gonna talk to me. And I can tell you that when we have, all, in our area, we have this idea of La Raza, La Raza, La Raza. And we, mm -hmm. we put a Aztec totem in our small town that said Viva La Raza and it was a god that in Mexico, a goddess of the moon that had, we know from inscriptions, annually 10,000 people were sacrificed. Did I go in there and deface it and say, you are honoring somebody in a racist fashion, Viva the race. And by the way, Viva La Raza comes from the Franco government in Spain. It didn't come indigenously from the United States. Uh, and you're honoring a goddess that was lording over cannibalism, human sacrifice, and I'm going to take it down. No, they voted on it, they get it. But my point is, if I go in there and people then say, Richter, I'm not gonna to talk to you because you are so-called white and we're not. And we're getting to that point with separate graduations, separate spaces on campus. I can tell you what the reaction is. I go to Walmart, it's 95% Hispanic, but at six in the morning, the few uh, non-Hispanic farmers that are still here, and they're mostly Japanese or Armenian Amer or so-called white, they come up to you now and say, hey, how are you? They don't know who you are, but they're tribalizing. In other words, they see somebody, they feel that they now for the first time in their life have a, a tie to because everybody else is doing it and they feel they're targeting and they don't feel they did that before. And now they're going to do the same thing. And when we start down that road, uh, I can't think historically how it's ever worked out and or it's ever worked out for populations that don't have 51% of the population. And what happened, I pointed out in the book is that I think Obama was partly responsible for it. We had a system to redress the evils of slavery and Jim Crow and systematize racism in the South and areas, some areas in the North. And we did for 50 years affirmative action starting the Civil Rights Act and we had all of these mechanisms of the great society and we were making progress in this binary. And it was about 89% non-African American, 11 or 12% African, okay. Then we started to separate class from race. And as immigration changed under the Immigration Act of 1964 under Ted Kennedy, we basically said nobody's going to immigrate from that are, is white from Australia or New Zealand or Canada or Europe. And the immigration then 60 years later has got a population that identifies as 30% non-white. 
I think it's kind of silly because there's so much intermarriage that we don't know who we are. But nevertheless, the census tries to discriminate and find out who we are. Okay, they were called for the first time diverse. Well, the guy over here owns about 5,000 acres. He's a multimillionaire and he came from the Punjab. He's much darker than an African-Americans that I see in everyday life. Mm -hmm. He is now diverse. The guy over here is from France and Spain, Basque. He's one of the world's largest almond growers. He is the person I rent my farm out to. He is diverse. I go to see somebody who just came from North Korea, uh, South Korea, who's one of the best uh, orthodontics, uh, excuse me, oral surgeons in the whole state. He is diverse. So we're getting these very, very wealthy people, very successful, yes. but they're going to, their children, and now it's not going to be black versus white dealing with this ancient problem unique to the United States in this, this part. But we're just letting everybody in, and they only have one qualification. They're not white, and therefore they represent 30%. And many of the, 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 the rhetoric is they're oppressed or they're victimized. So you get this kind of Orwellian situation where Oprah is in a $90 million house in Montecito communicating with Meghan Markle in a $15 million mansion. I'm all power, more power to them, but they're talking as if they're part of an afflicted group that's not white. Mm -hmm. And yet you can see now that class and race have, have devolved. They're not the same. And so when you look at this ethnic group by income, so-called white is about 16th. And you, you have people, Punjabi Americans, you have Armenian Americans, you have Arab Americans, and they have a far higher per capita income than so-called white. So I know that when I was teaching 21 years, mostly people who were not white, or if they were white, they were very poor descendants of the Oklahoma diaspora. I would have a guy on a forklift, Fowler was a forklift driver from Bakersfield who had nothing. Nobody in his family would ever come. He would be a brilliant, you know, Greek and Latin student, just like a Hispanic brilliant and an African-American. And I'd have to tell the three of them, you're not gonna get to anywhere out of Fresno State. It's a mediocre university. We have no name recognition and you have no cachet because you're a white male. He would say to me, I have nothing. And I said, it doesn't matter. Very, very wealthy white males who have everything, they run these places. And they don't get out very much, but they have decided that you are an oppressor of sense. And these people next to you, your friends, are oppressed. And so that's, a, that's happened in the United States that race, we don't talk about class anymore. We only talk about race. And I can tell you that the people that I see who are Mexican-American every day are worried about 27 cents a kilowatt hour because of the green initiatives in California are paying $5 a gas because some wealthy white or Asian person in Atherton has decided that they make $2 million a year and their big worry now is, is climate change. But people here, they wanna live one more day. So they are divorcing or disconnecting from a tribal affiliation because their leaderships are elite, they're wealthy. And I think that in a weird way, that's helpful if people start to see that they have commonalities based on class rather than racial interests. And you can see why the left did it because race they felt was a stamp that can't change and that class is mobile and fluid. And every time they tried to organize people in a Marxist Leninist fashion, they got too wealthy or they they were upperly mobile and they forgot their progressive roots. But when you say to a person, this is your race, 
and this group is always oppressed and bang, you're going to, then you have, you have the, the group or the ingredients for a social justice movement forever. So there, there are a couple of things there. First of all, when you talked about La Raza yeah. um, and you talk about multiracial democracy, yeah. I think that's kind of a misunderstanding of what La Raza means. La Raza actually means multiracial democracy. It's mestizaje. Oh, it's, no, it's no, actually, it does. It all hold, due respect. Hold on, Victor. Oh, yeah, all due respect. I'm a Latin scholar. It comes from Latin yeah. radics. It comes from the word race. I'm, I'm talking about the context in which it was used in your... Uh, probably in your community with the yeah. totem pole that yeah that yeah and, and what I'm Viva saying La Raza. is I'm sorry okay go ahead, it, go ahead. It, Viva La Raza three miles from my town there's a Swedish American town and they have three crowns for this Swedish emblem I can guarantee you that if that Swedish American town put underneath those three crowns long live the race that would be down in one day that's all I'm saying. Okay. Again, la raza, again, raza um, is one of those words, as you know, you've studied languages, obviously, and words from one language to another don't always translate directly. No, but um, I'm not talking about another language. I'm talking about the Spanish language. Right. And Francisco, and Francisco. in that context. No, 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 no. Race in the way that it, you are it does. About. No, no, that's what the left says. They're, they're, no, I can tell you. All right. Words have etymologies. So there's a lot of world. You yeah, can but use, you're you, taking it out of context. No, right? I'm not. Here's the context. You don't know what the context is. Oh, Here's okay. the context. I don't... Here's the context. In the 1960s, this radical group, splinter group of from the Mexican-American, part of it was the UFW, decided that they wanted a more radical, unifying rubric. So they came up with La Raza. Where was that word used? Where was it used in the same context? It was used by Francisco Franco in Spain. And what did he do? He created, created, it didn't exist. He created an ideology. He said, you know, Hitler's very popular and Mussolini has got something called La Raza now with two Z's in Italian. And I'm going to write a novel and the novel is going to be called La Raza. And I'm going to do a movie and I'm going to call it La Raza. I watched the movie, I read the novel. It's in Spanish, you can watch the movie. Okay, and what was the theme? The theme was this, you are not Spanish unless mm -hmm. you look a certain way. You can speak Spanish, you can live in Spain, just like you can speak Italian and you can live in Italy, but you're not Italian because it was a blood and soil idea. And that appealed to this radical group and it didn't exist among the Mexican-American people. You go back in the 1950s or 40s, they don't use the word. When they talk about community, my community, they talk about Puebla or gente. They took Raza because it had a racial connotation. It's, it's, it's used that way. Radix means your innate race. And so they imported it in the 60s from Europe. And then they said, oh, it has nothing to do with race. And you know what? The National Council of Raza finally gave up. They were under so much criticism, not from people like me, although I criticize them, but from their own Mexican-American constituents. So they changed it to Unidos America, USA because they understood what it meant. Everybody understood what it meant. And so one of the reasons that Trump, when he's 
I think, illogically and wrongly attacked a Mexican-American judge and says he's a Mexican judge. Why that didn't really destroy him was because the judge, Mr. Uh, Justice Curiel, was a member of the La Raza Lawyers Association. So the Trump people turned around and said to him, well, what's so bad about calling him Mexican when he says he's a member of the race? And so it doesn't it doesn't do so anybody race any and good. nationality are, are the same thing. Is that what you're saying? Race and nationality. They weren't until people in Europe in the 1930s in Germany and Italy and Spain began to say they were. And they said that you could not be a member of a particular nation unless you had a racial essence that they felt was innate to the blood and soil of that nation. And it was a remember what it was aimed at. It was Franco trying to tell the Jews, we didn't get rid of you all during uh, the Reconquista period and the fight when we got rid So we're going to get rid of you now. And it was people in, in Italy saying, you Jews that are very prominent, you look Italian, you speak Italian, you're not Italian. And that's what, and every country has these words. You know, not every country, but a lot do. Armenia had it, they were the Odars. These were people who they may live in Armenia, but they're not pure they're not pure Armenian. And there's a lot of words in Japanese and Chinese are the same thing. This country doesn't have that word. You know, there's not a word for American that says that it has to be a particular race. But if you say La Raza, you're saying the race and that you're defining the Mexican-American political movement by people of that particular race. And so that was why one of the reasons that the UFW failed. A lot of people who were not of that race wanted to help out, and they found out you couldn't help out, not if it was a La Raza movement. Yeah, that, that's historically untrue as well. Um, as you, you mentioned, Dr. King, Dr. King was a supporter of the UFW. Uh, the Black Panthers actually supported the, the UFW with their grapes, uh, you know, with their yeah. grape efforts. Um, but so that's but the, there you, were you, but the, yeah, were there not, were other groups, were but it, part of that group that helped but it, the UFW. Yeah. But so, it was it was not ecumenical. And the reason it failed, by the way, wasn't even because it, it championed La Raza and it failed because the Robert F. Kennedy Health Fund was looted. And second, that Cesar Chavez and his dotage turned over the leadership to Synanon so, training, Synanon training, and they drove out their best people. And then remember, Cesar Chavez sent people to the border and with weapons and tried to stop people from coming across that the Teamsters had encouraged to break the union. Yeah, right. No, I, I, I would agree with that. We, we talked about that uh, actually a few weeks ago when we were, I think, talking to Tucker Carlson. But, mm -hmm. you know, if you'll allow me just to, yes. Yes. Just to rebut you know, without, without interruption. Uh, the reason I was saying that it is a part of multiracial democracy, the idea of La Raza here is partly uh, the concept of mestizaje, which is we are a mixture of European and indigenous roots. And we've yeah. created something new out of that, you know, out of many come one, kind of the, the idea in much of Latin America, when people in Latin America say the word gente, you know, a lot of times they're referring to, you know, in, in Puerto Rico, they talk a lot about mi gente. What they're talking about is I'm a mixture of indigenous, of African, and of European, and that's created something new that unites all of us. So mm -hmm. when they're saying la raza, they're not saying we're different than, than you. We're saying we're part of 
many, and out of that many came one. And we're not going to, we're also in Mexico, as you kind of acknowledged earlier, in particular, there was, and still is, um, this sentiment that wants to uh, kind of bury the, the indigenous grandmother in the closet. Whereas they were saying, we are acknowledging our indigeneity as well as our European roots. We're not just Spanish, we are something new, which is comes out of this multiracial uh, identity. Yes. So that, that's where I was going with that. Yeah. Yes. I'm gonna go and just add uh, this question from your book where you say, quote, uh, a sign of democratic sclerosis is a loss of confidence in the integrity in the integrity of voting. You go on to say that, quote, those who gain power by election often sabotage subsequent elections. Given that there is no evidence of widespread voter fraud, according to Trump attorney William Barr and election officials, have called it the most secure election in American history and 60 lawsuits have subsequently failed. Do you believe that President Trump is harming our democracy by continuing to undermine confidence in our elections? I think that Joe Biden got a greater popular vote than Donald Trump and that that popular vote translated into the electoral college with more electoral votes and therefore he's a legitimate president. I also, though, will say that the Constitution says that in national elections, not all, but primary responsibility of setting balloting rules are uh, reserved for the states. And if you look at suits in March and April or the types of what Mark Zuckerberg did with $415 million, when you started to change those rules under the cover of COVID, and I mean things like you didn't have to have two names. You didn't have to have uh, your full address correct. You didn't have to, they changed the deadlines for the voting ballot, the mail-in voting. And at the same time, we went from a record of 40 million ballots that were cast not on election day in 2016 to 102, 102. And at the same time, the average states that were rejecting for most of our history, about 5% of ballots that were mailed in, two to, three to 5% suddenly went down to 0.2 to 0.5. So get this, we start having 100 million ballots. They're not gonna be cast, but by a magnitude of 10, we're going to allow them to be counted that under all previous elections, they would have been rejected. You're gonna get a lot of popular anger. That's number one. So yeah, I think there was a lot of, a lot of popular anger. I think the election was clouded and should have been very carefully scrutinized in March and April. And I do not think that unelected bureaucrats or registrars should have been beginning to change uh, the rules under the guise of COVID. And it was, is gonna, and I, it's not my view alone. Stanford University wrote a very careful white paper, if I could use that term, that's what they called it. And they decided they were very worried about mail-in balloting because they said it was coming too quick. And they there were not, and these were very left-wing professors. They didn't have the processes to adjudicate them and they thought there would be irregularities. But it wasn't just Trump. Remember that in 2016, Hillary Clinton said that she was the, she had lost the election. It was rigged that Russian collusion had warped the election and the Russians had taken her computer and leaked it. We know that was not true now. 
And she, we know from Robert Mueller that it wasn't true, but she still insists on that. And Stacey Abrams made herself into a celebrity by touring the country and introducing herself, Terry McAuliffe said it the other day, as the real governor of Georgia. And I think anytime anybody does that, if Donald Trump says I'm the real president, that's not right. Stacey Abrams says it, it's not right. If Hillary Clinton keeps going around telling people I was robbed, I really won the, that's not right. All right, more with Dr. Victor Davis Hanson in just a moment. But before we get back to that great conversation, I got to say, really appreciate the guys over at Grunt Style, Jason Nichols. They uh, take care of this show and take care of outfitting us. We own all this great Grunt Style apparel. We love wearing it. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I appreciate about them is they take care of our veterans. Of course, my mother was a veteran. God rest her. Your father is a veteran. Uh, your brother's a veteran. I got lots of family members who are veterans. And, you know, we certainly care about them because they care for our country. Yeah. And of course, you know, Grunt Style uh, takes care of them. You know, people who have come home from, from combat, people who have served in many different capacities in the military. Grunt Style employs lots of them, donates to those uh, charities that help those who, who are struggling with homelessness and other things. And we really appreciate that. And so you should appreciate Grunt Style by going to gruntstyle.com and putting in the promo code STN to get that 10% discount so you can be fresh dressed just like Vince Colonnades. Amen. Yeah, STN, promo code STN right there at gruntstyle.com, get 10% off. You seem to be an advocate, like in reading your book, you were an advocate of citizenship and strong border enforcement. Um, however, I read an, an opinion piece uh, you published for Real Clear Politics about a day ago. Yeah. Uh, and you seem to simultaneously advocate for the disenfranchisement of about 4 million American citizens based on partisanship and your disagreement with their political beliefs. In what you way? Some American citizens deserve representation in government and others don't. But what, what would we have to say? What I, I mean, that's an interpretation of what I wrote. What, what did I actually write that said I wanted uh, people to you, lose you their talk, voting rights? Uh, you were talking uh, specifically, you said something about uh, the left wanting to uh, add two more states. Yes. Um, in order to get more representation. And I, and the funny thing- No, no, I said that, two, two more states so they could have four more senators. So they could not, have four more senators, exactly. Yes, yeah, that was uh, what and, I said. Right. Uh, and, I, and I think it was, it was interesting that, that you said that. Um, well, I'll, I'll first, I'll, I guess I'll let you answer the question and-, and Yeah, well, I mean, that's a question of the process by which we admit states and the reason by which we do so. And- Historically, people have said that Puerto Rico is a little different case in the continental United States, and they have not had majority support for letting them in. And Washington, D.C. was a federal district, district that was created at our founding so that no one particular state could claim that they had the capital in their state and then leverage that for their own you know, advantages. So we made a federal district out of Maryland and Virginia. Okay, so everybody was fine with that. And then we come along and we have a contentious Senate and we have, in the context, we have all of these efforts now to change customs and traditions, in some case, the constitution, because people on the left don't feel it is providing the desired result. And so now all of a sudden we're going to get a 
Puerto Rico as a state or a Washington against the framers of the constitution, make that a state. But the subtext is that you're gonna get four liberal senators and that will break the 50-50 deadlock. That's why it's mentioned now and it wasn't mentioned 10 years ago. And when uh, Barack Obama came into office, he had a super majority in the Senate, over 60 senators. No one said that. Barack Obama didn't say as he did at John McCain's funeral and he had all these things. He didn't say, we need Puerto Rico. We need. They're only saying it now because they feel that their left-wing constituency will give them force states. If they can get four senators, then they can do other things. They didn't say, until now, the 1937 court packing scheme, if you look at any left-wing textbook, any left-wing historian, it's the one thing of the, of the New Deal that people hated. It was unfair. It crashed. Democrats were against it. You can see a, a website packed the court. The left now wants to get rid of the 150 year idea of a nine person Supreme Court. They didn't want to do that under Earl Warren. They had a, a, a six to three liberal. It's only when it's against them that they feel that they want to pack the court. The same thing with the Electoral College. As long as the blue, go back and read what Democratic strategists were saying after Obama was elected. They said, you're never, you're going to have a 50 year Democratic constituency because before the first vote is cast, we have the blue state of California, the blue state of New York, the blue state of Illinois, and we have now a blue wall of Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, and we're never going to lose it. They were for the electoral, this 250, this 233 year electoral college. So my point was same thing with the filibuster. Barack Obama said when Justice Alito was nominated, the filibuster was essential to American democracy, and he was going to exercise that to stop the Alito nomination, and he tried to. He didn't say it was a racist, uh, ossified relic of the uh, Jim Crow area, as he hinted during the, the uh, McCain funeral. So yeah. my point was that the left now feels that this hardcore left, and I'm not talking about the Democratic Party, I'm talking about a hardcore splinter group of the left that has seized power, seized maybe a, a hyperbolic word, but is in power. They feel that to get this agenda through, they have to make fundamental changes in the way that we make laws and we adjudicate the courts and stuff that they never would have said before. And the Democratic Party would have never gone along. And that's the context yeah. of having well, four senators. It's quite clearly about political utility under the pretext yeah. of of uh, offering people uh, something like that they'll be included in the system. Because I look at it, the example of um, redistricting that's going on right now. It's a very contentious issue, of course, redistricting, how we draw congressional districts across the country every 10 years after the census. And right now, Nancy Pelosi in her voting overhaul package wants to make it so that every state in the union uh, is required to use an independent commission in order to redraw these lines. Now, the reason she wants that is because the majority of state legislatures whose responsibility is to draw those lines are controlled by Republicans. So of course it would work to her advantage if she can get these independent um, commissions in place in order to draw the lines. And in fact, we're seeing it play out in Virginia right now, uh, you know, Virginia very much in the news. Virginia voters last year, uh, last, last election, voted in a referendum in an overwhelming margin to have an independent commission draw the lines for the for the state of Virginia. Now, Democrats a couple of years ago in Virginia were for this. They wanted an independent yeah. commission, but that's before they took over the legislature. And now with control of the okay, legislature wait. in the state, 
They're opposed to the independent commission, uh, which is which is deadlocked at the moment. And so it kind of really gets to the core point, which is it's about political utility. What yeah, we're, we're will get, this do for my long term power? Yeah, I, I think we're getting away from from my my original question. But I, I just want to say that uh, Vincent Jason Save the Nation is brought to you by Goldco. Um, now, having said that, I, I just um, what it sounds like to many people is that American you guys are advocating for American citizenship to be tiered. Is that is that tiered? What do you mean by tiered? There's a there's a top tier and there's a second tier. There's you mean, you mean it's an economic phenomenon or it's legalized, it's institutional. No, I'm saying that there are some Americans, uh, four million of them, who don't deserve the same amount of of representation as other Americans. Are you saying that I get too much representation because there's 20 million Americans, 20 million Californians have one senator and 250,000 Wyomings have one senator and therefore I get less representation for my senator than the people in Wyoming do for theirs? Well, I'm saying in Puerto Rico, there are no senators. Uh, Well, it's not American citizens. And and the same thing uh, for the District of Columbia, which is bigger than Wyoming. And Virgin and the Virgin Islands too. Sure. So, no, so, I, I, so, I agree. So your so your point is that any anywhere throughout the world that there are American citizens, the canal zone or no, something. Well, what that, is your point then? So that that's not my point. My point is any any territory uh, any territory automatically then becomes a state. I'm saying where American citizens, if it, there is a territory controlled by American laws. And, and has American citizens that those American citizens deserve representation, particularly if they're being taxed. And uh, you know, I think that's a that's an American principle. And I think your book was really good about citizenship. But well, it's I, 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 that I, I, some I, Americans don't deserve no, that I, same representation. If, if it, again, my point is not that there's not a mechanism for that to allow. There has been a mechanism since our founding, and that's how states that were provinces or territories became states. So the Senate recommends it, and then they get a three quarters vote of the the existing states. If that happens, it's fine. But that's not what the left is talking about. They're trying to find ways to say, we need the District of of Columbia, and we need the territory of Puerto Rico right now through a majority vote in the Senate to be states when we have this mechanism, which they so, won't be successful at. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna disagree with you there. Um, many on the left, in, including uh, me, uh, believe that Puerto Rico should determine its own destiny. And some- Well, they have, no, they, they have, no, no, but many, they have. Hold on, hold on, Victor. But they have plebiscites many, all- Many Puerto have. Ricans believe in independence. Fine, uh, so, I think that'd be great. They've had so, a plebiscite. They've had three of them in my lifetime. And every time that they do it, they vote that they do not want to be independent. The majority doesn't, but they want to join the United States. And then whatever party in power thinks that they're going to benefit them said, well, let's consider. Jerry Ford said, I'm for statehood for Puerto Rico. They want statehood. At that time, he thought that the majority of Puerto Ricans would be conservative. And so it. It's we have a system, and if they if majority if they want to be a part of the United States, and they seem like they do more than independence according to their own plebiscites, fine. If they want to have a plebiscite and say, you know what, let's just be independent, and let the Chinese come in and, and run our economy like a lot of places have done, fine. It's their business. 
because they're not a they're not a state of the union. There, there's provisions for that. Mm-hmm. And I have well, no the last that. Well, said actually had very low turnout because people, particularly independistas, actually didn't vote on purpose. So that that's not really. No, I think the problem is that the number of people in Puerto Rico that are dependent on federal assistance per capita is one of the highest territories in the state, and they do not want to lose federal federal. uh, Also, there's there's a way to talk about this issue that really gets at the heart of it too, about sort of what the intention of the left is here, and it's with put Puerto Rico aside for a minute. D.C. is a perfect example of where kind of the kind of the true goal is exposed because. When you raise this idea that, like, okay, fine, shrink D.C. down into a very tiny federal district that encompasses merely the Congress, the Supreme Court, and the White House, and then retrocede what's left of it back into Maryland, and then everyone who's in that zone who lives in northwest D.C., northeast D.C., southeast D.C., they'll all be represented by their two Maryland senators when they rejoin Maryland. The left never goes for that. They're not for that idea. They don't like it because they want two new senators for Washington DC. So it's not actually about representation. It's about, it's a power gamble. It's it's about what can we do uh, in order to maintain long-term I think, power. I think that's the context of it because whenever the issue is raised, it's usually for political purposes. And, but we have mechanisms, as I said before, I'm not against, uh, what I'm against of is some, to ram something through for political advantage without going through the customs and traditions or laws that are on the books. And, right. And that that can uh, that can apply to constitutional questions like voting laws or the Electoral College or long traditions like the filibuster and the nine person Supreme Court. And uh, I think it represents a larger existential question. And that is, um, I think the left, I'm not talking about the Democratic Party, I'm talking about the left that has taken over the Democratic Party, and they feel that on all of these issues, whether it's in Green New Deal or whether it's foreign policy or critical race theory or monetary expansion, they're not polling 50 percent. And out of that exasperation that people haven't appreciated what they think is good for them, they either want to change the mechanisms by which we make laws or they want to open the border and not enforce existing federal laws. We have 2 million people who are going to cross the border unvaccinated at a time when a federal worker or a U.S. soldier will be discharged or fired for doing the same. And they're given de facto exemption. And then they will give, give federal support and they will be, and this is going to continue. And they feel, and I'm not, I'm not saying they, I'm saying what they write. I read it that California now is a blue state forever, that Colorado is, that Nevada is, that New Mexico is, and soon Arizona will be, and maybe Georgia and Texas. And they are becoming blue because of changing demography as a product of 22 million people living here, likely 22 illegally, and the second generation of another 10 or 15 million. And so whether it is changing the electorate or changing the system, they want to get to a a, per, a, a point where these issues that they're so wedded to gain majority support. And if they don't gain majority support, they can still be institutionalized by changing the process by which we make laws. So Victor, the, here's, the, here's the issue that I, or the question that I have. You're saying that they want these things immediately. This is why they're pushing the filibuster issue. This is why they're pushing all these things. But when you have these new immigrants 
coming across the border, they can't vote and they won't be able to vote for a long time. So it's uh -huh. not really, so either it's not an immediate change that, that the left is looking for, you know, uh, in order to, to make states blue, you know, or because I know citizenship takes a long time. The other thing is, I, I and we citizenship takes a long time. You, all you have to all you have to do is have a child on U.S. soil, and and eight, eighteen years is not a long time in politics. It's a very short oh, time. California. Okay. So yeah, I mean, if you're saying eighteen years is not a long time, and that that that's if the law is. I'm not so sure. But that's if the law that that's if the law is enforced. But as you know, there's a, a huge. I I I got to I got to get going. But I'm sorry, but. Yeah because I have a thing at nine o'clock here, but there's a big push that people who are not here legally that are residents illegally so can vote. And we have it in school board elections in Massachusetts. We have it in school board elections in the um, Bay Area. I can't think of a single uh, privilege that a citizen has that an illegal citizen does not accept for now uh, to hold office. That is, there are certain local elections where illegal aliens are voting. They can go back and forth across the border without a passport. They don't have to be vaccinated. They're, they're eligible for the full array of entitlements. In fact, they're exempt from the, from the application of federal law in 550 sanctuary jurisdictions. So I think the real question is, when I say the dying citizen, we are conflating citizenship with residency. And it, it's it's everywhere. And the only thing that's left is and that's that's being challenged because we have people who are here illegally that are participating in political campaigns, even though that's a felony to do so. So a lot of these felonies are simply nullified. And that's another issue. But remember, the nullification, nullification crisis of South Carolina and what the South did in the 1850s and what the South did in the 1960s was nullification. They said, we're morally superior to the federal government. We're not going to listen to their laws. And you can see where this is going to lead. You're going to get some county in Utah or Wyoming that says, you know what? In our jurisdiction, there's no such thing as the endangered species. To build that building and squash that three-spotted toad. Or, you know what? You can go buy a Glock 9, go in, buy it at the gun store, take it home that day because the federal government has no jurisdiction here. And that's what the sanctuary city movement is. And that's what the non-enforcement of the border is. So anytime you nullify a federal law for supposedly superior moral means, doesn't mean that other people aren't going to follow that same methodology. They will. And then you have something like you had in the 1830s with Jackson or the Civil War. Or what George, Wa uh, George Wallace gave the same argument on the steps of the University of Alabama in, 18, in 1961 that the, that the sanctuary cities are saying today. We are morally superior, and we are not going to follow these awful federal laws. And therefore, if you are a felon and you're here illegally, we are not turning you over to that awful ice. George Wallace said, this is our country. This is our state. We are not going to accept uh, segregate, uh, integration just because the federal government's going to federalize the National Guard. It's the same principle, and it will lead to the same result. Uh, Dr. Victor Davis, Hansen, yeah. this has been a great conversation. I know yeah. you have to run. Yeah. I, Jason and I will continue to stew over every element of this conversation. Yeah. Thank you so uh, much. Hope we'll definitely time. have to have you back. I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Jason. I enjoyed Thanks. it. I did Thanks enjoy it.
Victor Davis Hanson, the author of The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization are Destroying the Idea of America. It's already a New York Times bestseller. You could even juice it again. Keep it, keep it going. Thank you very much, guys. Thank, thank, you. thank you. 